Hello and welcome to Scrutiny's Emerging Trends podcast with cybersecurity expert Shane Shook. Today we'll be discussing insider threats due to layoffs and competition, DDoS as extortion, new ransomware extortion and GRC stakeholders. Welcome Shane and thank you for joining us. Let's kick this episode off by discussing what emerging trends and significant risks you have been seeing over the past few months. Okay, thanks, and good morning. Uh, we're having better weather here in Santa Cruz than I ex- expect uh, most people are having. So since our last podcast, and more generally over the past few months, primarily I'm seeing a rise in what we call insider threat. And that seems to be comprised or instigated by two areas. The first is because of the fear and uncertainty and the actual impact that the COVID crisis is having on businesses. There's, of course, an associated increase in the number of layoffs that have occurred. Most businesses seem to maintain their staff at least through the end of the year. But with the new year, we've seen a rise in the number of staff layoffs. And coincidentally, and somewhat contradictorily, there's an increase in business competition for key talents, particularly in cybersecurity and cyber defense. And that's because while businesses are suffering, there's coincidentally a rise in cybercrime that's occurring. Some of it, and I would argue significant amount of it, actually being caused in part by the layoffs due to disgruntled employees or departing employees and similarly contractors in similar situations where we're seeing a real increase in the types and the ease of data theft, either through the traditional USB sticks that they copy data to and take with them, or much more commonly now, the use of shadow IT services like Dropbox and Box and Apple Cloud and Google Drive and the like, and personal email, where there's not as many protections that are widely practiced against the corrupt use of those services when or if they're allowed. So the insider threat is growing coincidentally with the outsider threat, where there really isn't any decrease in the number of attacks and the objectives of criminal syndicates from the outside. But In the face of this risk environment uh, that's maintaining pace, unfortunately, businesses due to their operating demands are forced to lay off staff that have unfortunate consequences. In the same period in past years, I've had less than half of the number of insider threat cases and investigations that I've supported clients with in this period between sort of Christmas and tax time, as I call it. So it's revealing to some extent what we've known is a growing concern, which is the ability to control the authorized or unauthorized use of shadow IT services, particularly cloud storage and cloud communications, as that's becoming a more popular method of stealing information than the old USB drop or zip drive copy that used to occur, although the USB drop still occurs. Next to that, on the outside, although there was a depression in the number of ransomware cases over the holidays, whether that was in fact or was just in consequence of people taking a bit of time for their families and themselves, we're seeing that ransomware is back up to 
its prior activity levels with still the automated ransomware delivery that we expect to see with botnets, although there has been some impact with the Emotet botnet takedown recently, or one of the Emotet botnet takedowns, as well as the human-operated ransomware intent on data theft and extortion in the face of revealing protected secrets. But next to that, we're also seeing an evolution by this threat actors into a simpler technique attached to their uh, theft of protected information, which is rather than implanting and taking space and time with ransomware in those target environments, they're finding that DDoS serves essentially the same beneficial purpose to their objectives. So we're seeing the growth of an old technique, that being DDoS, with the same objective of the potential to expose protected secrets of an organization with the objective of extorting payment from those victims. So it's an evolution of the same objective outcome. And to some extent, it's simpler to achieve. And it also results in, to some extent, less identifiable attribution characteristics or evidence. Then finally, the last emerging trend that I want to talk about on this call is historically we've seen security monitoring, testing, and security posture being the domain of originally the CIO or more recently the CISO as infrastructure maintenance and support of business processes and demands. But with privacy mandates and other information protection mandates, and especially with the growth in cyber insurance policy coverage, we're seeing that GRC stakeholders are becoming more commonly in recent months the business buyer or at least the influencing decision maker for the stakeholders involved in the purchase of those related products and services. And it's interesting because with GRC and control of the purchasing decision, there are some mandates or requisites that GRC stakeholders have that are a bit different than technical requirements that have been levied on service providers and product providers in the past. Whereas CISOs and CIOs are more interested in the technical details and capabilities to support nearer-term decisions, fundamentally GRC stakeholders are subject to regulatory and litigatory mandates on evidence preservation and production requirements. And that has the net effect of demanding on those products and services the necessary chain of custody on original system of record and essentially preserving evidence related to audit, test, or certainly investigations. And it's having interesting outcomes that organizations should be aware of, particularly in the U.S. and even in the U.K. with recent court decisions on what had previously been considered work product privilege of audit reports in cybersecurity incidents or incident response working notes and reports under GRC guidance and under recent court findings, they're more commonly being required in discovery without having the benefit of privilege. So these are issues that go to the policy requirements and program mandates according to whom the service and the products are being supplied uh, for what purpose and related to that are the necessary understanding of the service providers of the demands that they'll face. So if that is what is being exploited, what would you recommend organizations do to protect themselves against these types of threats? 
So talking about the insider threat, I'm going to go back to something we talked about, I think, on the last podcast, which is insider threat is fundamentally people and people are being exploited. And the insider threat is not only people intentionally stealing, but sometimes people unintentionally supporting malicious criminal outsiders' objectives. So we're seeing an increase in business email compromise that's bypassing the use or utility of backdoor Trojans and instead leveraging waterholing attacks on the internet as a means of initiating contact with passive or active victims, according to the specificity of the waterhole, so that then the social engineering can take place by phone rather than requiring an implant on a network in a target system, which reveals more about the intruder and potentially attributable factors related to the crime or their organization. So people are being exploited. In some cases, insider threat, as we saw last fall with the Tesla case, insiders are sometimes being coerced by criminals to supporting their efforts to infiltrate or intrude upon environments. And going back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago about competitors and competition for talent, people are being exploited in their social network to essentially recruit them away from the organization that they currently serve into organizations that might be more tempting situations to them. And unfortunately, in some cases, as we've seen in the press in recent months, may have ulterior motives or hidden stakeholders that are not really above board. So as I talked about on that recent podcast, what it means is organizations need to understand the pressures that people are under and focus through communication and with compassion on their people. These are difficult times. Communication is really important. Team communications and participation and making people feel like part of the organization is even more critical in these tough times. But next to that, organizations should take steps to increase their brand and social network monitoring through solutions like Constella Intelligence or Zero Fox or Proofpoint offer through social network monitoring of brands and domains use and the people that represent those organizations. And focus on employee training with the intent on helping people recognize when there are attempts to exploit them through social networks. So essentially helping them understand that they should really be aware that these activities are occurring and through training and testing, help them recognize the features of those coercion tactics and really encourage them to become more familiar with the context that they rely on in these social networks and in their interpersonal connections. And by raising that awareness and increasing not surveillance as much as observation or observability in the social networks of the brand representation, be more aware of who can and should be party to decisions such as information transfer or certainly financial transactions between organizations. Okay. How can organizations be aware of these types of exploitations and attacks? So it comes down to understanding the risk environment that you operate in. So fundamentally, how are things that most organizations have learned to test for with outside vulnerability scanning and inside breach readiness or cyber risk assessments, such as scrutiny performs, and the test for with red teaming activities like fake help desk calls, USB drop exercises, and increasingly, and I'm happy to see this, executive tabletop sessions 
involving stakeholders from different functional divisions of an organization and not merely the technical teams that react to alerts. But it's also important to be aware of why they're vulnerable to what types of attacks and what that means to the types of audits and tests that they perform. And that should be contextualized even to the when. So as an example, if you were to perform a vulnerability scan in midsummer, for example, the results of that would be less relevant to the finance department, as an example, than performing a vulnerability scan in the tax season or at the end of quarter. Similarly, if you were to perform a communications exercise in late summer, it would have a different impact than a communications summer in the period just before the holidays, you know, in sort of November. So understanding when and why organizations are vulnerable to different risks and threats is a necessary component in modeling the types of testing and auditing that are being performed. Now that we've got where and how really well addressed with programs of red teaming and blue teaming exercises and tests, and even to the executive tabletops, it's time to increase the comprehension through education of all of the stakeholders involved, finance, operations, sales, communications, and technology into the why and when those vulnerabilities have different impacts on the organization. I see. And what kind of investments should be made or considered by organizations? So this is an interesting thing. There's been a real focus in the security industry, if you will, of the past year toward renewing the use of SIEM and increasing the use of SOAR. So event logging and event processing with intelligent rules decisioning for observability of security risks in an organization or threats accorded by intelligence, either from the outside or from contributions by industry or law enforcement. And it piggybacks onto the past several years of the increased utility and observability at the endpoint on the network in the domain services for user rights management and user behavior, and even into uh, social networks through brand representation of people and the social networks, grids that they create through their interactions. So all of this observability has had a march toward logs, consolidation, data processing, and alerts generation with automation, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. But what most people don't realize, and unfortunately, it has consequentially resulted in rededication of budget toward these EDR, NDR, XDR types of observability, is that's what is called a passive defense posture. And unfortunately, many organizations have focused their purchasing toward best of breed to achieve that observability with a mistaken understanding that observability provides them a better security posture. Now, it certainly provides them a better security posture, but it may not be the security posture that for their particular risk environment they need to be most focused on. So that observability, as I mentioned, is passive in nature. And that is because until those indicators are processed and matched through 
artificial intelligence or rules, et cetera, into an orchestration and response engine, nothing can occur to either investigate nor remediate those activities, which, as you can glean from the way I'm describing it, that's after the fact or passive defenses. So it's very useful for understanding the crime scene and the impact determination of intrusions or business interruptions and how they occurred. It's less useful, though, in offering an active defense that intercedes in the activities. Dedicated attacks are much swifter and more deliberate than passive attacks. Passive attacks being those things like botnets that offer catalog operations to third parties, subscribers who have criminal interests to exploit an environment through purchase of the access. That's a passive attack. Still today, some 70% of botnets are estimated to be behind corporate firewalls. Those passive attacks, certainly the passive defenses can help identify based on the uh, MITRE attack framework or the kill chain opportunities to intercede in the evolution of passive attack patterns. But dedicated attacks like business email compromise or dedicated attacks like surgical intrusion for intents on intellectual property theft or fraud on competitor accounts or business interruption that do occur, those demand an active defense that will intercede with the method of exploitation. So moving just to an EDR and or an NDR and some kind of XDR capacity to compile, process, and react to the indicators and alerts produced by those detect and respond technologies is an after-the-fact passive reaction or defense to the threat environment these organizations operate in. And not every organization can afford a passive defense, or more specifically, not every function of organizations can afford a passive defense. So investments really need to be considered in terms of what are the types of attacks that have been most successful and are practiced more commonly on which functions and in which industries. And decisions need to be made on the appropriate security architecture to afford a best security posture for the organization by those functional vulnerabilities. So a law firm operates very differently than a bank. A bank operates very differently than an automotive plant. Automotive plant operates very differently than a nuclear power plant. And equipping all of those industry types with the same type of passive defense architecture doesn't account for the specific active attack threats that we've seen demonstrated against each of those types of industry participants in specific functions where law firms, of course, have to protect ultimately client information. So it's critical to have a DLP solution that prevents misuse on the theft of data through encryption. That's an active defense as opposed to merely relying on an EDR that at some point in the future will tell you that the theft happened. Or in a nuclear power plant, the need for for example, a silence or something that is considered an endpoint protection that will intercede in the execution of a process 
rather than an EDR that merely reports that a process has been created and some hours or even unfortunately days later report the pattern of the activity. It's important to consider the types of attacks that have been demonstrated as lessons to then apply an appropriate context to the active and passive defenses that are necessary in which functions of organizations according to what types of risks and threats that they operate under. Thanks again, Shane. Before we sign off, is there anything else you would like to talk about? No, other than I hope that these sessions are informative and knowing that they're recorded, people can go back to them and quite like the uh, blogs that you attach to them. So I'd encourage people to go back to our prior recordings and the prior blogs that are listed on the security website. And of course, I'm happy to answer questions if anyone reaches out. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's always such a pleasure to sit down with Shane. More information regarding this subject can be found on our website at www.scrutiny.com. If you have any questions or concerns of any of the topics discussed, please get in touch and keep an eye out for our next episode as we catch up with Shane.